Welcome. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming out on such a very cold day. I think the subject of the passionate projectionist, a nice steamy presentation for a cold day is very appropriate. So I'm sure you'll be glad you came. Um, might be surprised or disappointed by what I'm actually going to show you based on that title. Um, so as the film technician in the moving image department, it's my responsibility to prepare and ship film prints to screening venues around the world to support the museum's worldwide film loan program. Preparation includes thorough inspection and documentation of the print's condition, making necessary repairs, assuring that the countdown leaders, preservation and funding credits, and the cue marks are all in place on every reel and every print. Shipping prints securely with appropriate shipping documentation to the proper destination in a timely fashion is also very important to the work I do. So in addition to serving as a film technician here since 2001, I've worked on our projection staff and served as our projection manager for five years. And I'm also a 2001 graduate of the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation, which we host here at the museum. Several, several other uh, Selznick graduates are here in the room with you. It's all, it's all a plant. Uh, it's all part of our plot to slowly take over the archival projection world, and we're working very hard at it. Um, prior to my career at the museum, uh, my work has involved um, work in film and video, broadcast television, corporate communications, distance learning, and theatrical film projection. What I find so rewarding about film projection is that as a projectionist, I'm operating a piece of electromechanical equipment in the booth. In the adjacent auditorium, an audience is becoming emotionally and psychologically engaged in the narrative on the screen. So somewhere between the projectors and the audience, magic is happening. And as a projectionist, I have the opportunity to make the magic, and I find it very, very rewarding. Um, I would ask to uh, try and keep the presentation moving because I've got a lot of interesting material uh, available for you. Please save any questions you have for the end. I'd like to begin my presentation by showing you a five-minute excerpt of a film that I made 24 years ago during my last two weeks as a commercial theatrical projectionist. I'm only going to show you the first five minutes to uh, give you an idea. Uh, basically, it's to provide you with uh, some context for, for the rest of the presentation this afternoon. And since this is merely an okay transfer from a Super 8 film, please do not expect cinematic luxury here. <laughs> So what you saw there is um, a type of projection called platter projection, where film prints, which are typically shipped on 2,000 foot wheels, are built up onto large platters so that the whole show can run continuously on one projector via automation, other than manually threading projectors. Um, this was the standard projection technology around the world, primarily, prior to the advent of digital cinema exhibition. Um, the the uh, invention of the xenon lamp, which could run for hours at a time, and the invention of the platter allowed this technology to happen. And this technology allowed the advent of multiplexes, because now you could have 
one person operate more than one theater at a time. And so it was uh, not unusual to have projectionists, uh, at least in the US, run anywhere from a two-plex up to a 16-plex with 35 millimeter film prints um, with just one person. Um, at that theater, uh, that was the last theater I worked at uh, before I retired from commercial projecting. It was just me and one other fella. We would work 12-hour days, uh, alternating days during the week. And um, even with all that going on, all that meaning, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes of work between shows, I had time to uh, carve pumpkins and build roller coaster models and stuff <laughs> like stuff that I can tell you now because you're not my boss and theater manager. <laughs> um, what you saw there is very different from archival projection, which is what I want to talk about today. Um, archival projection is a very different thing. Archival projection um, is a uh, uh, system whereby we use two projectors with manual changeovers so that we can show the film without uh, slicing and dicing it. Um, for platter projection, these reels have to be spliced together. To do that, you have to cut off the heads and the tail ears of each reel and splice all the reels together. Typically, when you're doing that, you're adding about three foot of white shoe polish to the edge of the film on either side of the splice so that at the end of the, the, uh, the, the film's run, when you've got all this film built up, you know where to find the splice and to break it down for the distributor who's gonna come and pick it up and these things. Um, so what happens is you're adding material to the print that doesn't belong there, it's not good for it. And because these uh, prints go from theater to theater to theater, rather than the projectionist being all quality interested, whereby they are taking the uh, time to um, uh, uh, take the tape splices apart and clean it and splice the head and tail back together. Typically, they'll just cut off a frame or two with the head or tail and reveal each time because it's quicker. Um, if you have two or three prints uh, that are ending your run on a Thursday night and Frank from the depot is going to be there at midnight and he's a cantankerous old guy in his big uh, crown Victoria, he doesn't uh, want to wait around for you too long. So you've got to, as soon as the film, first film ends, that ends your earliest, you have to start breaking it down. Then you may have two or three other ones and then you help carry them and throw them in the trunk, and then they go back to distribute it to the next venue. So time is very critical, so projection and staff are not very conscientious about losing a few frames. What do they care, you know? As an archive, we care. We don't want to lose a frame. So we, we do this projection, and this is the only type of projection we allow for our film prints that we ship around the world. Before we loan uh, to anybody the first time, we require a 12-page screening facility report to be filled out. And now part of that is finding out what technology they use and how they project films. So in order to project films in this fashion, each reel of film has to have uh, two important things. Um, you have to have a countdown leader at the head of each reel, which is about 12 feet long. And then you have to have two sets of cues printed on the film uh, for, the odd, for the projectionist to see to perform the manual changeover. Those, um, those sets of films, you want me to talk over here? You're good. Okay. I'm just going to turn this one. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the two sets of cues printed on the film are about 10 feet, 12 frames apart if they're according to specification, which gives you about seven seconds. So the way that works is, let's say uh, we start the show with a trailer. On, uh, well, let's pretend that trailer on projector number one on the left is actually a full rail. And then we have reel number two on machine number two. So we start the show, we hit the screen, the film is running, you get about 18 to 20 minutes per reel, depending how long it is, at standard sound speed of 24 frames per second. Uh, as, as the uh, reel nears the end, the projectionist is now standing over by projector number two, staring out the port. They got their hands on the controls. 
the minute they see the first set of cues, little dots in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, they, those are the motor start cues. They turn on the projector motor. So now this is going through the countdown, coming near the head of the film, while this projector is going near the tail of the film. About one second before that film ends is a second set of cue marks called the changeover cues. As soon as the projection sees those, uh, they use the control to uh, switch the, the, the uh, picture and the sound from that machine to this machine. And hopefully by that time, the beginning of this reel has entered the reading part of the projector, the aperture. And if they do things correctly, the audience doesn't know what's going on. It's just a smooth, seamless presentation. So once this projector's running, they go over there, they shut off that projector, it doesn't shut off on its own. They take the film off, they rewind it. If they're a good projectionist trained at George Eastman Museum, they clean the film path of the projector before threading up reel number three, thread it up to the proper spot, which is eight or nine feet before the beginning of the film, depending on the ramp up speed of the projector and the reaction time of the projectionist. And then they continue that throughout the rest of the show. So that's manual changeover projection. That's the, that, that is what we teach here. That is what we promote. That is what we allow for our film prints, as well as other archives around the world. However, keeping in mind that that's how things were done back before the days of automation, which is why, and when it was nitrate film, you always had two projectionists in the booth. You always had one projectionist per projector because of the flammability of the film. And they were typically shown on 1,000-foot reels, much shorter, 8 to 10 minutes. Um, okay. With the Dryden Theater as an exhibition gallery, George Eastman Museum presents the breadth and depth of cinema history as part of its mission. We are also committed to presenting moving images in their original formats whenever possible. And that can be quite challenging. It requires the technology, knowledge, and skills capable of properly presenting over 120 years of cinematic developments. That is no small task. Furthermore, as an educational institution, we are committed to sharing film projection knowledge and skills with our students in the Selznick School and with the world at large via a publishing project, which I'll address shortly. Now, prior to the development of digital cinema exhibition, movies were distributed and projected primarily via 35 millimeter film prints, a physical analog medium, human readable, projected with basic electromechanical technology. Prints were typically plattered, as you saw in the film, or sometimes built up on a 6,000 foot reels. Uh, some screening venues would still use two projectors, but they would use 6,000 foot reels building up three reels on each of two of these to contain typically a feature, uh, feature film. So you get about an hour of film on each one of these. You have to cut heads and tails off of most of the reels to build it up. You're still doing shoe polish to find, find the reel. And then because the automation, was, uh, because the projectors were automated to change over between projector and one or two, you typically had to put a foil cue tape somewhere on the film near the tail of the first uh, triple reel to, act, uh, to activate the sensor and the projector film half to activate the odd automation. So just because someone has two projectors doesn't mean it's manual changeover projection. They could be doing this, something that, uh, that can still be found. Okay, so that was, that was in the days of film. Digital cinema exhibition involves machine-readable data in the form of a digital cinema package, a DCP. A DCP is a set of files representing digital moving image content, such as picture, sound, subtitles, metadata, packaged on a hard drive. 
It's designed to be the digital equivalent of a film print. So here we have, in this box, a sled drive containing a DCP. So in the days of a digital, our days of digital exhibition, this has replaced this. This is a sled drive that gets put into the, to the, uh, to the digital cinema processor where the information is ingested. At the theater, the DCP is ingested into the digital cinema server, and once the files are verified, it's played off the server through a digital cinema projector, such as the one we have in our Dryden Theater booth. But that's not all. To prevent piracy, a huge financial risk for the studios, the DCP files are encrypted in a manner that, that allows them to be played only on a specific digital cinema server at a predetermined date and time. The distributor emails a KDM, a key delivery message, which is a zip file, um, to the projection site to unlock the DCP for the screening engagement. Now, with the development of digital cinema exhibition, we understand that a drastic reduction in the skilled workforce of film pro professionals will result. To address this reality, our talented projection staff, staff in the moving image department, and students in the Selznick School have been working on a multi-year project to draft and publish a basic projection manual. The wealth of knowledge and skills accumulated and practiced by our staff and shared with students in the school is a rich and logical resource to utilize for this project. The projection manual, which is currently scheduled to be published a year from now, March 2018, to debut at the FIAF Annual Congress. FIAF is the International Federation of Film Archives. Um, it will encompass six chapters, uh, beginning with the components of film projection. And this chapter will cover um, the physical attributes of motion picture film, equipment found in a typical projection booth, various components of film projectors, such as the lamp house, the pictures, uh, picture head, the sound head, the lenses, I'm going to also talk a bit about the, uh, theater auditorium equipment, such as screens, speakers, and HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, something people don't think about. If you want to have people watching movies, you have to keep them comfortable. Um, the next chapter, uh, Film Inspection for Projection, focuses on inspection. Um, the inspection report is the key, it's very important, for the successful presentation of a film. Um, it, it addresses gathering relevant data to ensure the correct presentation, um, addressing such things as countdown leaders, checking splices, damage, and the shrinkage measurement of the film, talking about aspect ratios. The aspect ratio of a film is the ratio between the height of the film and its width, and always the height always expresses one. Well, uh, the, the history of cinema over 120 years has provided a number of aspect ratios. And so the, uh, the projectionist needs to determine what is the appropriate aspect ratio to project the film, which is not always the same aspect ratio that the film is printed. So there's always some interpretation going on. Um, that chapter also talks about the type of soundtracks, optical, magnetic, mono, stereo, or multi-channel, um, analog or digital, or both, and it addresses uh, cue marks on the print. Preparation for projection. Uh, this chapter addresses all the things you need to do to be able to get that piece of film on the screen properly, talking about prepping the projectors, such as installing the proper lenses and aperture plates, uh, threading the projectors properly, like setting the intermittent first and having the correct size of loops in the projector, 
setting the proper audio format on the processor and the proper masking on the screen. Um, and it also addresses the pre-focus process. Here at George uh, Eastman Museum, and particularly in the Dryden Theater, before every screening, before we open the auditorium up to the public, we go through a pre-focus process. We project several minutes of the first true reels of each film um, so that we can set the gate tension, the framing, the focus, and the sound levels so that when we hit the screen for the presentation, everything's set right. Unlike a commercial theater, which shows films four to five times a day for weeks at a time, most archival screening venues, inc including ours, show a film once. We only have one chance to get it right. So proper preparation is very important to do that. Projecting the show, this chapter addresses starting the show properly, threading the countdown in the projectors to match the spacing of the cue marks, because the cue marks are not always per the specification that they should be. So a wise projectionist, rather than adding a second or third set of cues, which often happens, knows how to thread a projector to compensate cues that are non-spec. Uh, non uh, non um, this chapter also talks about performing manual changeovers, cleaning the film between the reels, rewinding the film safely, ending the show properly, and troubleshooting. Cleaning and maintenance talks about um, cleaning the booth, cleaning the projectors, lubricating and calibrating the projectors, very important for, for maintenance, and also a little bit about cleaning the screen, which is not something one wants to do too often or too lightly. Uh, we have a brief last chapter on nitrate film projection. Um, this talks about identifying nitrate film stocks, storing it properly, the safety equipment you need to have on the projectors and in the booth to be able to project nitrate, and uh, talks a little bit about transporting nitrate film, which is a uh, dangerous good. We are one of only four screening venues in the United States that can legally show nitrate film, and we are the only one outside the state of California, which makes our nitrate picture show festival, our festival of film conservation, something really special. And I know we've got some flyers out on the table there if you want to find out more about it. It's coming up, I think, on May 5th to 7th, and I think this is our third version of that, Ben. Is that right? Third year we'll be hosting that. So please allow me to read the first few paragraphs of the manual. But before I do that, let me do this. This is one of our passionate projectionists, Ben Tucker. Ben Tucker, who's sitting right here in the audience, give a chance to, to, to uh, <laughs> Ben, raise your hand. <laughs> we also have uh, our chief projectionist in the audience, Spencer Cristiano. Let's embarrass him over there. So give these guys a big round of applause while I drink for the good work they do here in the Dryden Theater. We also have our special guest, let me embarrass him, recently retired from George Eastman Museum, Steve Rivniak who came to George Eastman House from Kodak. He was also one of our projection staff. So, Steve, thank you. Thanks for coming. Okay. <clears throat> so, you're in a, in a position to project some film. Great. What will you need to do this successfully? How about some film, some projection equipment, and a place to show it in? These are the basic necessities, the building blocks, if you will, of film projection. But to project film successfully, you also need the desire to do so. In the archival projection world, passion is the cement which binds the building blocks of projection together. Almost kind of a Star Wars Zen thing going on here. It's like the force. The passionate projectionist raises the functional level of equipment operations to an art and craft capable of seamlessly delivering the breadth and depth of film history, 
to an engaged audience in a manner consistent with the intentions of the filmmakers while respect the integrity of the film as a museum artifact. Archival projection encompasses many disciplines, including mechanics, optics, and electronics. Knowledge of film history, acquired skills, and sensory awareness are necessary components as well. The ability to coordinate these resources to present a successful screening is the hallmark of a professional projectionist." Unquote. So 45 minutes is certainly not enough time to address the many aspects involved in film projection. So in our limited time together, I thought it would be interesting to touch upon two components of film projection which we teach to our students and cover in the manual. Let's begin with the film object itself. As a museum artifact, motion picture film is unique in its presentation requirements. Unlike other museum artifacts, which are displayed under controlled conditions of temperature, humidity, UV exposure, and sometimes even enclosure, a motion picture film is exhibited by running through a piece of equipment with teeth at 90 feet a minute in very close proximity to a very bright, hot light source. Yikes. Motion picture film has many physical attributes which a projectionist needs to assess. Now, each of you has been provided with a strip of 35 millimeter motion picture film. This is time to pick it up. Okay, let's give you some nice light on the screen here. Um, and so the, the reason is to, so we can talk about and examine its physical attributes. Let me start by saying you all have 24 frames of film. That is one second of film at the standard speed of 24 frames per second. So any piece of film has a gauge, okay? You have 35 millimeter film. Film is printed on a variety of bases, nitrate, acetate, or polyester. You all have a piece of polyester film in your hands. The image, is it color of black and white? Okay, you've got color. Is it a positive or negative? Because you have both elements necessary to produce the, the film prints in your hands. Is it silent or sound? Okay, and if it is sound, what are the type of soundtracks on it? Is it magnetic? Is it optical? Is it analog? Is it digital? Is it both? Is it mono, stereo, or multi-channel? Um, what is the aspect ratio? And the aspect ratio printed on the film may not be the aspect ratio that the audience is intended to see. Um, does the film read properly? Let's say you had titles in, on your piece of film. Does it read properly when you look at the base or when you look at the emulsion? That's one is A-wind, one is B-wind. We need to know this stuff. Um, what about the perforations? There are at least three types of perforations along the edges of the film that it could be, you know, and they, they indicate different factors about the film. Um, the, uh, the optical soundtrack, and you all have an optical soundtrack on your film. And I forgot to, I got to give myself a peek. Okay, so the optical soundtrack on your film, is it, is it, uh, is, which is on the left side of the image, um, depending on which way you hold it, I guess, um, <laughs> is that printed with a black background, a cyan background or a, a magenta background. Yours all happens to be a cyan color background. That means something to the projectionist. That means that this piece of film actually needs to be run with a red light reader and the sound reader as opposed to white light. Okay. I don't want to go into the history of that now. If you want to ask me about for questions, please do. I can, I can tell you more briefly about that. So even the color of the optical soundtrack is important. Um, is it, again, mono stereo? Does it have digital tracks? And in fact, the piece of films you all have, all have three digital audio tracks on that piece of film in addition to the optical track that you can see next to the projector. In between the perforations on the left-hand side, if your soundtrack, optical soundtrack is on the left-hand side, in between those perforations is a digital soundtrack, SRD, Spectral Recording Digital, Dolby Digital. 
the two edges have uh, two soundtracks on it. Those are Sony Dynamic Digital Stereo. That's information. Bad place to put soundtracks. The edge of the film get damaged and scratched the most. And then in between the picture and the optical soundtrack, if you look closely, and I guess I should have given each one of you a magnifying glass as well, um, there's a little series of white dots. Okay? That's time code for a third digital format, DTS Audio, Digital Theater Systems, now Dataset Entertainment. That's a, that, is, uh, that is something that's relevant to the projection of the film. In addition, um, some manufacturers print uh, uh, manufacturing information between the perforations and the edge of the film, something called edge code, which at least would tell you the manufacturer of the film, but at most might tell you what country it was manufactured in and the year that the stock was manufactured, as well as the batch number, the slit number, more information like that in the case of Eastman Kodak motion picture film. Um, also, uh, if you happen to have the head of the reel that had uh, the titles, you'd be able to see the language of the titles or subtitles or intertitles on the film. Excuse me. And if you ran this through a piece of equipment that could read the sound, then you'd be able to determine the spoken language on the film. That's something that uh, I haven't been able to figure out how to tell from looking at it. Uh, that would be an impressive feat. If any of you figure out how to do that, please come and teach, teach us and our students. That would be amazing. Okay, so before we go any further, I have a projection demonstration to share with you. I have a movie trailer threaded up on one of our 35mm simplex projectors up in the booth behind you. We, in the case of Spencer Cristiano, who's volunteered to help, uh, pay no attention to that man behind the door, we're going to project it in a way which you've likely never seen film projected before. And this is uh, for purposes of a demonstration. So if I can do this correctly, we will like this. And Nick, if you want to lower the stage lights, and I will lower the house lights. And hopefully Spencer won't burn film. Fighting for his honor. 
your conduct is completely unacceptable, and are hereby reduced in rank to chief petty officer. You think you're better than me? You damn right I am. Well, let's just see. And one man. You're the one they talk about. Living beyond his limits to succeed. What did he say to you to make you try so hard? Be the best. Where you are. Why do you want this so bad? Because they said I couldn't have it. That boy's got five minutes of air. You screw up and that boy's dead. You read me? Give it up, cookie. This ain't worth dying for. We got an unknown contact, probable Russian submarine. Academy Award winner Robert De Niro. When he fails, you retire. You ain't gonna fail. How you doing this Sunday? Gonna get yourself in a lot of trouble. Take people off. Academy Award winner Cuba Gooding Jr. We have many traditions. Some good, some bad. However, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for our greatest tradition of all. Honor, sir. of this demonstration is to illustrate how a film projectionist is always involved interpreting the film prints for an audience. Um, hopefully, most of you have never seen a film like that before, and hopefully you never will again. You're not supposed to. So what is it that we saw up there? Uh, perhaps the most obvious is you saw the soundtrack, the optical soundtrack. Perhaps you noticed in between there in the picture, you saw the digital code for the time code for the DTS. I don't know if you noticed or not, uh, but the, the film is actually printed, the trailer was printed in two aspect ratios. It's printed at 118 to 1 and 137 to 1. Okay. Guess what? The audience, of course, never saw e either saw either of those aspect ratios. That is intended to be projected at 185 to 1, which means every audience who saw that only saw the middle third of that picture. Uh, sometimes films are printed hard matted, which means uh, they'd have very black, thick black frame lines and the projectors would only see what uh, somebody wanted the audience to see. But here, the projectionist has some leeway. They have some interpretation. Hopefully you also notice Spencer framing the film up and down, something we have to do. And hopefully you also notice that he was focusing the film after a while just to see, again, demonstrate some of the things that a projectionist is doing in between uh, the projector and, and the audience. And now for something completely different. Let's address some of the technology involved in film projection, beginning with the illusion of motion. Are you all familiar with the concept of persistence of vision, whereby because of our eyes, our optic nerves, and our brain, if we see a series of pictures in succession, it, they appear to move for us, okay? The way that film projectors do that is through two mechanisms. They do it through the intermittent movement of something that pulls the film down one frame at a time, and a shutter, typically a rotating shutter, that will block the light when the film is moving into place. Because for the illusion to work, we can't see the film moving into place. We just have to see the, the flashes of the static picture. Okay, so we'll first talk about the shutter. Here you have a picture of a two-bladed shutter, typical for most cinema film projectors. Uh, let's call this blade number one. Let's call this blade number two. And I keep forgetting that I've got myself a nice laser pointer. Okay, blade one, blade two. 
While blade one is in place, let's say that this is the aperture where the light would come out, the film is moving down into place. And then um, opening number one comes along, the frame is projected out onto the screen. Blade number two comes out, blocks the light, the film stays in place. And then opening number two comes around and the frame is projected a second time. So at the standard speed of 24 frames per second, um, the audience is actually seeing 48 images per second. The reason why is that if you truly saw 24 images per second, you would see flicker. It'd be like watching me or a movie blinking your eyes. And in fact, when projection technology was first developed in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was single-bladed shutters, and the films did flicker, which is why they were called the flickers. And people could only stand short films because that would drive you crazy after a while. Well, somebody uh, at some point uh, figured that to make flicker go away, you add more. So that's how the two-bladed shutter was invented. You add more flicker, we cannot perceive it. And that works fine for 24 frames uh, per second film, which is sound film. If you're an archive running silent film, and some of the earliest silent films that may run at 16 frames per second, that creates a problem. Because once you get below about 21 frames per second, you start perceiving flicker especially if you have uh, a little density in the film. Let's say a Felix the Cat cartoon that's a white background with just black line drawings. You see flicker real soon. So if you have to run that properly as, as we want to, as anyone should want to, and let's say it's 16 or 18 frames per second, how can you run that without getting rid of flicker? Well, with getting rid of flicker. You add more. You can install a three-bladed shutter on your projector, which will add more flicker and it goes away. The, the drawback here is it also cuts out more than 50% of the light of a two-bladed shutter. So you need to compensate for that with the speed of your lenses and the amount of light in your lamp house. So always some workarounds, but something to think about. Um, so working in conjunction with the shutter is a movement. Let's talk about uh, this movement here. What you're seeing is a 16-millimeter projector. What you're seeing here is a claw movement. These two pins are part of the claw. The claw. So what happens is the claw comes out into that slot. I love that. Thank you. The claw comes out into that slot. It engages two sprockets. It pulls it down the frame. It retracts. It goes up again. It comes out, engages two sprockets, moves down. And it repeats that while the shutter is rotating. Um, claw mechanisms are very common in 16 millimeter projectors, Super 8, Regular 8. All small gauge projectors typically have a claw mechanism. Um, the other type of mechanism found in most, if not all, 35 millimeter projectors is the intermittent movement. Okay? Here's the intermittent sprocket that pulls the film down four perforations at a time. It's attached to this intermittent movement. Uh, the intermittent movement is a mechanical device that uh, is in, uh, works off of the projector motor. It takes the continuous motion of the projector motor and turns it into the intermittent motion of uh, the sprocket drive. And so what I'm going to do now is, yikes, I don't want, no, don't do this. Okay. I'm going to show you a short animation of how that works. It's a very simple device. Um, it's very ingenious. Probably more so than I am at operating this piece of equipment. But hey, I'm an analog guy in the digital world. And there's some really cool sound effects in here. 
my favorite part of it. Here is the Geneva or intermittent movement. This is the mechanism that eluded Edison in his quest to build a working projector. The intermittent is the key device that lets us project moving pictures. It's the heart of the projector. It converts the continuous motion from the projector drivetrain into the intermittent motion needed to pull the individual film frames into the projector gate. If we can see inside the case, we'll discover a brilliant piece of engineering. It consists of two major sections, a cam, colored red for this demonstration, and a star wheel in yellow. The intermittent sprocket is connected to the star wheel shaft. A pin in the cam engages a slot in the star wheel, and the intermittent sprocket pulls down exactly one film frame. Let's slow the action down a bit more. You can see the action of the pin as it engages in the star wheel. As you might imagine, this is a unit that must be manufactured with a high degree of precision. A very simple, elegant, and beautiful mechanism. <clears throat> so, the mechanical intermittent movement, the Geneva movement, was developed by Oscar Mester, and it's based on the Maltese cross. Oscar was a film engineer and a founding father of German cinema and film industry. In 1896, he built his first camera and projector, which included the Maltese cross movement, which continues to be used in film projectors today. Um, newer projectors have an electronic intermittent. Basically, they have uh, an uh, electronic stepper motor uh, where the, uh, the um, drive sprocket for the projector is uh, directly connected to the stepper motor, and the motor just turns, turns, turns at whatever rate you, you, you want to set it at. The kinetone projectors we have in our Dryden booth, the, the two newer projectors, they feature an electronic intermittent. Lenses. The purpose is to magnify and focus the image on the screen. The focal length of a lens, measured in millimeters or inches, determines the magnification of the image on the screen. The size of the screen and its distance from projectors um, determines the appropriate focal length of lenses required. Focus is defined as matching the focal point of the lens with the focal plane of the film. Multiple lenses with different focal lengths are necessary to accommodate films with different aspect ratios. Most projection lenses are spherical. Once you put them in the projector, it doesn't matter what uh, rotational orientation they're in. Anamorphic lenses, however, such as used for widescreen process such as CinemaScope, have to be vertically aligned properly. If they're not aligned properly on the projector, that's what happens. And we don't want that happening, even though it does kind of look cool. These are aperture plates. An aperture plate inserted into the projection aperture determines the aspect ratio on the screen. The aspect ratio of film has changed through the years, mostly due to technological developments. To accommodate these changes, it's necessary to utilize multiple sets of aperture plates and lenses per projector, to, plus movable screen masking, to properly present films. Let there be light, and there was and the light was good. This is a xenon lamp. This is a xenon short arc lamp. Um, uh, this consists of electrodes, an anode and a cathode, which are sealed in a current arc, I'm sorry, they're sealed in a fused quartz envelope, the bulb, filled with ionized xenon gas under high pressure. 
Direct current arcing across the gap between the electrodes <coughs> ionizes the gas, creating brilliant light. Xenon lamps are available in a range of wattage capacities from multiple manufacturers, and they can explode. I've seen the results of one at the theater I worked at when the other guy was working. Fortunately, he called me in to help, and <laughs> it, shattered the, it shattered the mirror that it was housed in. Uh, glass ended up coming outside the lamp house and was wound into the film uh, onto the platter. So you want to treat those things very carefully. Um, here you can see a xenon lamp that is encased, uh, nested, as it were, inside the mirror. So we have our xenon bulb, we have our parabolic mirror. So it takes the light that's emanating uh, in a circle and, uh, and focuses and uh, aims it forward toward the aperture where it's needed. Um, higher wattage lamp houses sometimes also feel, feature glass heat shields, which in between the bulb and the front of the projector, uh, it's a piece of glass specially coating on an angle so that it'll deflect the infrared portion of the spectrum of light away from the gate to minimize the amount of heat coming onto the back of the film. Predating xenon lamps, carbon arc light sources can still be found in a handful of installations. In this light source, two carbon rods, a positive and negative, are slowly fed together <coughs> as direct current arcs across the gap burning the ends to create a gas ball of highly incandescent plasma, creating brilliant light. The arc flame produces smoke, soot, and intense heat. Since the burning carbons are slowly fed together mechanically, it's essential to keep the gas ball at a constant location in relationship to the reflector. Very labor-intensive and very hard these days to try and find carbons. And uh, the last technology piece I'll talk about, because I know I'm running long, I'm sorry about that, but it is warm inside here, we have electricity, is sound. Magnetic soundtracks on film are rare, optical soundtracks printed on the film are the most common. Both the analog and digital soundtracks we've been talking about so far are all optically printed on the film. However, unlike the picture, which has to be read in an intermittent fashion, sound needs to be read in a continuous fashion. They both are read separately, which is why on uh, film projectors you have a picture head and a separate sound head. The sound head is located below the picture head because on 35 millimeter motion picture film, the sound is printed 21 frames in advance of the corresponding picture because of the fact that they have to be read separately. Pictures being read intermittently, sound has to be read continuously. So they are separated physically on the prints. The optical soundtrack is read by a solar cell, which converts pulses of light to pulses of electric current. An exciter lamp provides the light. So you have an exciter lamp off here uh, going through a slit lens. The object of a slit lens is to focus the light and to mask it off to a narrow horizontal beam coming across the film. If we look over here, we can see this is where our soundtrack is on the edge. So the light is coming here in just a narrow horizontal slit. On the other side, we have a solar cell looking at it. The variations in the, vari the uh, variable density or variable optical track, that causes the light to pulse. The pulsing light is read by the solar cell hidden in here, converted to a weak electronic pulse, which is sent up to the sound processor, which uh, preamplifies it, processes it, and then that sound uh, information is amplified by another set of ampli uh, amplifiers to drive the speakers behind the screen and the auditorium in the case of surround sound. So that's the basics of how optical sound works. Um, here is a picture of an exciter lamp. Um, tungsten exciter lamps are the original light source, but in recent decades, alternate light sources have been developed. 
infrared LED readers. I have largely replaced these because the infrared LED is much more stable than, a Z, than, than an exciter lamp that has a tungs, uh, tungsten filament that will, um, it will start uh, going this way over time. What's the word I'm thinking of? Sag, thank you. It will start sagging over time. Red LED readers have flourished as color release prints have migrated away from silver dye soundtracks to the cyan dye soundtracks, which you found on, your, on the piece of film you had. Um, the advent of digital audio for films requires additional sound readers on the projector. Dolby digital tracks are printed on the film in between the perforations. A special uh, reader can be mounted on the, above the picture head of the film and have an audio delay so that the signal stays in sync. Or some of the newer projectors, such as our Kinetones, feature a dual red light reader where the normal sound reader would be. Uh, one reader will read the optical track, the other one will read uh, the optical analog, the other reader will read the Dolby Digital, the optical digital track. DTS digital audio, the audio that requires the, um, the sync pulse on the film, uh, that employs the time code. It's printed on the film between the picture and the sound. The time code controls playback of the audio, which comes on CD-ROM discs. So an optical time code reader is mounted above the picture head on the projector. The reader sends the time code into a DTS processor, which keeps audio in sync with the film. Basically going back to double system sound, like in the early days with the Vitaphone sound on disc. Everything old is new again. Okay. Sony Dynamic Digital Stereo is printed along both edges of the film. You've got SCDS tracks on those samples. Um, each edge carries four channels of information plus two backup tracks. The SDDS reader is mounted above the picture head with a programmed audio delay. The variety of soundtracks encoded on motion picture film is a real challenge for projection venues desiring to pre present the breadth of film history. Film projectors have very limited real estate to accommodate the number of sound readers required, and ain't that the truth. And so with that, I have to say on behalf of the museum, myself, and our staff of passionate projectionists, thank you all for coming this afternoon. And if you have any, any questions, I'll do my best to tell you the truth, or I'll fib with a straight face so you believe me. What, uh, when you were showing us the DCP, yes. uh, what's the origin of the term SLED, SLED drive? Or is that a four-letter acronym, or why do they call it? I will ask Ben if he can answer that better than me, since I don't know. I assume it's because you, the whole thing just slides into yeah, sure. the processor. To my knowledge, it's not an acronym. Any other questions? Yes? So when they're deciding about what kind of sound you use, how to record it, is that a decision that's made by the producer and the director initially when they have to record, or is that by whoever processes it and distributes it and owns the copyright? That's a great question, and I wish I could give you an answer. Those are one of the questions that we often talk about in our department. Who makes the decisions right. to, to print them? Is it the exhibitor? Is it the distributor? Is it the cinematographer? Is it the sound designer? Who makes the decision? to whether to print the, the, the film hard matted so that the projectionist has to follow their lead or to print it 137. I don't know. Okay. Sorry, I can't answer that. Come back here when we have, uh, have somebody presenting. Ask Vittorio Storaro. <laughs> he might be able to help. I just yes. wanted to ask about folks uh, who are making home movies, rolling yes. cameras and their own screen. Uh, how does that all work? I mean, 
there's a lot going on here. Okay. So this is a simpler camera, and they just shot their own It's it it. No, no, it's it's very much the same process except for home movies, the 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 type of film stock is reversal film stock. So commercial films, they're they're shooting a negative in the camera. And then from the negative, the optical printing, they make a uh, a fine grain master, back to back. So we have a fine grain master. From the fine grain master, they make a duplicating negative. And that duplicating negative is run over and over again to make the projection prints. Okay? Once, the proje once the duplicating negative wears out, they go back to the fine grain master and make another one, always protecting the camera original. You, know, you, you, you run that, print that once. But in, in home movies, the, the piece of film that's in your camera is a reversal stop. So instead of uh, ending up as a negative after they process it, they actually process it twice so that you get back uh, the, the film that was in the camera as a positive. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, there's, I don't know if that answers your question directly. It's a very broad question. Yeah. Yes? What's the uh, operating limit for the film? Typically, I would say generically 2,000 watts. I know initially when I started here, we had 1,600-watt lamps in our uh, century projectors. We then upgraded them to 2,000 watts, which actually ended up creating a problem with a couple of our aspect ratios, because as uh, just as much as not having enough light is bad, having too much light can create problems. And there's uh, the professional group, the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, SIMTI for short. Okay. They are the group that, uh, that creates the standards to meet for, for film and television. Back in the day when they were creating uh, film standards, they were SMPE because television didn't exist. So Cynthia has a standard that the amount of light on the screen, which is measured in foot lamberts, should be ideally 16 foot lamberts in the center of the screen, uh, falling off to the edges at no more than 25%. So it should never be less than 10 or 12. Uh, and the way you measure that is with a spot photometer, a special piece of equipment that can read light being projected on the screen and back. Um, that's all spec'd out by the theater designers when they're designing the auditorium. So a lot would be based on the, the, the size of the screen, uh, not so much uh, the distance from the projector until it comes to drive-in movie screens, which are never bright enough. Um, so it'll all depend on uh, the design of the theater. Um, IMAX film, back especially when IMAX was originally on 70mm uh, 15 per film, some of their theaters, since the screens are so big, they had 10,000 and 12,000 water-cooled lamps to get that much light on the screen. And that's a challenge. The challenge is, if you, well, you've got that piece of film. The picture is only what? An inch and an eighth by an inch, and you're trying to fill up any size screen with this, okay? Addressing your question of home movies, home movies were never meant to be shown on large screens, which is why when you saw that DVD transfer, you could watch all the, the grain dancing around, okay? They were meant to be shown on small screens. Um, it's always a challenge to take something small and illuminate a large screen without damaging the film. Uh, if you don't have enough proper heat filtration on your projectors when you're projecting film, you can start getting embossing where the frame starts expanding, and that typically is permanent. And so that's causing damage to the film. So if you have a large screen with a very large wattage lamp, you need to make sure you have some heat filtration involved in there as well. 
Um, there was something else I was going to mention in that. Now I can't remember what it was. And um, black and white film will have uh, sooner get embossing than color film because what does black and white film have that is removed for color films? Silver. Exactly. And silver is a metal, and metal conducts heat. So it's not... It's, it's, it's not unusual for me to find embossing in some of our black and white films when I'm uh, uh, inspecting it because it's been shown uh, with lamp houses that have uh, very bright hot lamps without proper heat filtration. So that's, that's something to be considered. Also, if you're running a, a silent film at a slower speed because then it's in the gate longer. So that's something to take into consideration. Yes? Uh, speaking of silent films, a couple of years ago... Uh Beggars of Life was shown here, and Philip Carlin was going to accompany it, but uh, there was a, a, a volcanic eruption in Iceland. I remember that. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, uh, so what happened here? But turn to James Card's uh, uh, recorded material to accompany the picture. Yes. So, um, so I, I can go anywhere with that, but. <laughs> but I'm wondering what question, what uh, what what issues, special issues, having such a, you know, were there any indications as to how to present the two together? Uh, you know, when you pull that out of the. That's a good question. I was not involved in that projection. Ben, were you involved in that at all? I assume they probably just. Um, well, first of all, uh, we would have had to migrate the the magnetic audio tape to probably CD to play it back in the booth. And probably during the pre-focus process, it was just a matter of finding out uh, how to sync it up manually in the booth and play it back. Uh, one of the things, as a Super 8 filmmaker, I typically have soundtracks on audio cassette tape for a lot of the films that I make. Well, they play back at different speeds on different equipment. So at least for, what, for at least one film I have, I have two different versions, one for playing on the stereo, one for playing on the boombox. So even though if something is in sync at the beginning, it's a double system sound, it can go out of sync. And that was one of the challenges of Vitaphone film. When, when Vitaphone came out in 1926, the first sound films, the sound was on a disc. The, the, the projectors were built with a turntable incorporated into the projector all running off the same motor. Um, the sound started from the inside and went to the outside, the opposite of... 33 and a third LPs. And by the way, 33 and a third LPs came from the speed that was used to encode Vitaphone discs. Anyway, the problem was, if the record skipped, all of a sudden you were out of sync with the film. The only way you could get it back in sync is to start over again. And that's going to kill your schedule. If you had film damage and had to remove frames, you get out of sync with the disc. So anytime the film got damaged, you had to replace the damaged frames with black leader something to keep it in sync. Projectionists hated the coming of sound when it was on disc because of sync problems. Once uh, 1927, movie tone sound on film came along, that solved those problems because now the sound was printed on the film. They didn't have to worry about it. Life got a little bit better for them. Joe? So, While you're on sound, you mentioned that they have two backup tracks, I believe you said Sony does it? SDDS. And um, I'm wondering, in the music world where we're just doing the sound, video, we have backup tracks, but they're used to expand depending on the equipment you're using. Okay. Is yours literally just a backup of the track? It is just a backup of the track. SDDS is put on the edge of the film. 
If you understand how a film projector works, and after the Q&A, I will go upstairs and invite any of you to come up and take a look, and we can talk some more if you want. Um, the way that film works in the gate of a projector, it's being, it has to be held flat against a metal plate by another, another metal plate that's rubbing against the edges. So the ends of the film get scratched every time it goes through a projector. So that's the worst place you can put a, uh, a soundtrack. And Sony knew that. So that's why they had information encoded on both sides and they had some backup information in case one of them couldn't be read, they'd have some backup information on the other. One thing I didn't mention, because we don't have all day, although I could talk about it all day, is that um, all three of the digital soundtrack technologies are designed so that if they can't read the digital information, it will revert to the optical soundtrack. So the optical soundtrack is always backup. And so if you're in a theater and you might hear something weird going on with the audio, it could be that they're trying to run the Dolby Digital track. And with the Dolby Digital track, if you have a certain amount of faults per, what is it, per, per second, Ben? Or something like that? A certain amount of faults per whatever. If the fault rate gets too high, uh, it will divert back to the optical track. So that redundancy is built into all three technologies. I mean, think about it. What, what, without those digital tracks, I would look at this and say, okay, where are you going to put another soundtrack? Yeah, they found three places to put three additional soundtracks, all in bad spots. I mean, Dolby Digital is in between the purse, right? In between where the teeth grab it. The minute that gets out of frame with any of the sprocket drives, there goes your, your Dolby Digital track. Um, and probably the, the best secure one is that, that uh, DTS track that's in between the picture and the optical soundtrack, and the fact that it's only a sync pulse. Okay, it doesn't have to have the sound information. A lot of information on these pieces of film. Any other questions? Yes. How long does that, would one print last? Like, when you, like, in your production, you know, how many, I mean, obviously it went to other theaters or... It, it all depends on how the print is cared for. Um, when we strike a print for, for preservation of material, we are expecting it to last, we're talking in hundreds of years. Okay. Because of how we care for it and because of the fact that we keep the film cold and dry in storage when it's not being projected. Our vaults are kept at 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 30% relative humidity. And because we vet our venues right. to make sure they have the proper type of thing. So, I mean, they, they could hold up for hundreds of runs without a problem if the equipment is maintained properly. It always comes down to the human factor. Whether a print is plattered or run on manual projection, it all depends on how well the equipment is maintained and how well the film is handled. A lot of the damage that we see when films come back from loans are damaged because of poor handling. We can tell by the type of damage that it wasn't done in a projector. It was done probably when it was rewinding, it was being rewound too fast, um, as an example. And another question, did the film stock actually get thinner over the, since 100 years ago, you know, starting in 1905, was it like better at making that is a great question. Thank you, and thank you for being here. Love these questions. It actually has. Nitrate film stock was thicker. Uh, it was the thickest of the three materials. And then acetate film stock is somewhat thinner than that. And then polyester film stock is the very thinnest of the three. Um, but it is believed that polyester film stock is not going to shrink and curl over time. Time will tell. That is a big problem with acetate film, the, the safety film that came about after nitrate, is that... Uh, um, the triacetate film shrinks over time, and what happens is it develops vinegar syndrome. And vinegar syndrome is an autocatalytic syndrome, which means once it has it, it accelerates the pace of the, uh, of the vinegar syndrome. 
and there's no way to reverse that process. Right now, the only thing we can do is transfer it to a, another film stock um, or, and or freeze the film, which is often done, in the hopes that we'll find some way in the future to be able to save that and reverse that process. Um, and the thickness of the film certainly will, the, will affect the focus. Matter of fact, if you're running uh, on the same projector, like in the platter days, if you had trailers that were on acetate film and the feature was on polyester film, you'd have to refocus slightly because the plane of the film is slightly different. And in the optics of a projector, it'll pick that up. Unless you have slower lenses. Ideally, you want slower lenses. And I'm talking about lens speed like in a camera. When you have a, a 35 millimeter single lens reflex camera, you can change the aperture on the lens to get more or less light onto the film for a variety of reasons. Uh, the less, the smaller the aperture, the more depth of field you have in your subject matter from front to back. Same thing with projection lenses. The slower the uh, speed of the projection lens, the more depth of focus you get. And depth of focus is important because of focus flutter. Well, what the heck is focus flutter? Now, see, it's turning into a, another lecture. Focus flutter has to do with the fact that each film frame is stopped and projected twice. Well, when the film is nice and cool at room temperature, it's nice and flat. The minute that light hits it for the first time, there's so much heat, it slightly expands, and it moves the film out of plane. And then when the blade comes around, it cools off a little bit and gets more flat. And then by the second uh, time that the light hits it, it's warmed up, so it doesn't move as much. But every frame is moving a little bit in the gate, and Kodak has done a high-speed film captures to show this. And we have Daryl Jones, one of our projection staff, another retiree from Kodak do an annual archival projection le lecture for us and our students to show this information. So having a slower lenses with a smaller aperture gives us more depth of focus to keep the film in focus. Uh, a challenge is when we get uh, films, acid, older acetate films or nitrate films, particularly for the nitrate picture show. Very old films that tend to start warping, well, they're not flat to begin with. So that can be a real challenge to try and keep them in focus on the screen. <laughs> I mean, films are meant to be projected when they're new. When they were manufacturing films, up until like home video market came along, there was no aftermarket. Once they had their first one, they were just gone and forgotten about. There was no aftermarket. There was no reason to keep them. There was no financial incentive to hang on to your films and preserve them. It's here today and gone tomorrow. We are trying to do something that was never intended to do by, by keeping these artifacts. And so nitrate films that were made decades ago. The youngest nitrate film I think is now 63 or 64 years old, something like that. Um, it's a challenge for archives to do something with a medium that was never intended to last. But that's okay. Gives us a reason to come to work every day. Yes. Okay. I'll go home first and then you. Okay. Uh, Sorry. Master, what, uh, what is in Pale? In they, they talk about remastering. Okay. Of film. Okay. Well, that would be going back to uh, a preprint element to strike a new film print in its basic sense. Oh. Okay. So the studios, you know, with the advent of home video and television, which gave a new market. Television back in the 50s was really the first aftermarket use of film prints because now studios could sell the films, the rights to television stations. Okay. So now that gave them incentive to start carrying. So now, uh, yeah, if you've got one of these and it gets worn out and you want to um, st strike a new print, you contact the studio and say, hey, do you still have preprint information on this? I think <coughs> the, the term itself, remastering, probably is more to do with home video and release 
as opposed to preservation of actual film stock. I just want to ask, uh, how many uh, movies or films that you loan out every year? Is that, there a large demand for movies from the archives? That's a good question. I should be able to answer that, but I'm always busy getting the next one ready to go, so I don't really gather statistics, although Caroline Yeager in our department does. Um, when I first started in this job in 2001, uh, we probably averaged, um, let's say, six, eight loans a month. Um, now we're probably down to two or three, but what's interesting is we're getting a greater variety of venues now that want to borrow prints. So it's not like the same old, same old, regular frequent flyers. Now we're getting a lot of new venues that want to project film. In fact, there's a cinema in New York City, in Manhattan, the first multiplex that opened in 1972-ish, Ben, is that right? Called the Quad Cinema. Well, it eventually closed, and now um, a real estate developer has bought it, who's a film enthusiast. He's upgraded it, and now one of their screens is going to be a repertory screen where they run manual change over projection, and uh, I'm in the process of inspecting two films that we're going to send there. Metrograph in New York City also opened up, I think, last year. They're showing films, uh, 35 millimeter film prints. So there, it's, it's kind of like analog audio. Um, there's there's a, a resurgence of interest in a medium um, that has been around for a long time because there's an appreciation for the quality, the, the quality of the image that you'll get on this that you won't get in a digital presentation. Uh, in the uh, the bond monthly uh, booklets, of the, uh, it, there, somewhere on you know like page eight or something, there's a little it lists the uh, you know what's being sent to Indianapolis and San Diego, and, and there aren't that many. Of, well, there's, there's the more that we here. send. There's more that we send than appear in there. That's why. That's what I was asking. Sure. Yeah. So I was trying to answer his question, but I didn't know whether that was what how. How good an indication sure. that Sure. And then there's, there's occasional uh, situations where there'll be a festival where a venue will contact us. A bunch of years ago, the Cinematheque Francaise was doing a, uh, a Hitchcock festival, I think it was. And so um, they, I think, borrowed maybe 30 prints from us over a six-month time for just one venue. And then two years ago in 2015, when the world and us were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the incorporation of Technicolor, there were three Technicolor retrospectives around the world. They had Berlin, Vienna, and Museum of Modern Art in New York. And uh, that was a project we spent two years prepping all the prints to go uh, to run. Plus, we had, we had them over here. So occasionally, depending on the situation, we might have more loans going out. In uh, terms of the manual changeover, uh, I used to work with someone who, uh, I guess it was like 50 years ago, he was in the service, and he would movies like on a Navy base or something yes. on Saturday night. And he, I, I've never noticed this, but he said that there was some little tick in the uh, upper right-hand corner, and when you would get to the end of a reel, that was a, a trigger to, I don't know whether you had to flip a switch or you know what was involved. How, how did that work? Those are the cue marks. Those are the cue marks, and we, we use them here. There, uh, some, some film labs don't put them on the film. Some f film labs do. There's two sets of cue marks, uh, four frames each. They should be 10 feet and 12 frames apart, 7.16 seconds apart on the tail of the film. And uh, for manual changeover projection, the first set of cues tell the projections to start the motor of the second machine. 
and the second set of cues tells the projectors to change the picture and the sound to that to the second projector. So is he actually manually flipping a yes. toggle switch or something? Like yes, that? yes, he was, and we do. Absolutely, it's all done by hand. Turn around, you can see the two projectors up there, and Spencer was up there manually doing stuff to, to make it happen. Yes, sir. Others might be interested to know the uh, term cigarette burn. Okay. It's a, a, a term I'm probably less familiar with than you are. Oh. I have a, I, so <laughs> illuminate us, please. Okay. Uh, before the little mark up in the corner was put in photographically, projectionists in early days would make their own by burning with a touch of a cigarette the changeover point. Okay. Well, I certainly hope they were doing it on safety film. <laughs> 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 um, there's, there's a device called a cue maker, and we have several of them, and what it does is it describes a small circle onto the emulsion. Basically, it scratches the emulsion off in a small circle. Um, as an archive, uh, we tend not to want to do that, so what we'll do is we'll put uh, a, a china marker uh, uh, strip, a uh, diagonal china marker strip, on the base of the film where the cue should be because it can be then removed safely. If you do that on the emulsion, you'll never be able to completely remove it. So we make sure that the films have, when we, they go out for long, they have cue marks on them in the appropriate places so that other people aren't marking up our films inappropriately. Go ahead, your hand was up first. Um, well, I one here. I'm just wondering about nowadays in the regards to the Star Wars and Henry or whatever. So that's all to Oh, where's it playing? No. <laughs> they, um, uh, so is that, how does it focus? And then do they have to actually have somebody up in the booth to actually go up and actually set it, make it go? With, I, the, actually, you don't have to. You can have with 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 this projection nowadays. You can actually set up the automation so that it can it can be run um, from the manager's office. Right. So they just time it and they don't. Even and it makes sure that somebody goes up and turns on all the switches. Does it focus automatically? Though? You have to do that. You have to calibrate the projectors. When you're installing okay. your your digital cinema projector, you have to calibrate it. Right. One of the challenges that we have here in the in the Dryden Theater specifically is space. Okay. Our booth was set up in 1951 when films were still manufactured on nitrate film. It was designed and set up to run nitrate film. So it's an enclosed booth. I'm told that there are steel plates in the walls, and it's so designed that we can isolate the booth from the auditorium in the event of a fire. Okay. The whole uh, complex is a National Historic Landmark, so where we are a heritage building. There's, there's a lot of things that we can and can't do. One of the problems we have is when the booth was built, we have two century projectors in the middle, and then on the outsides we have a couple of uh, we have a couple of uh, now we have kinetones. When the theater was built in 1951, what we ended up having there was we had a couple of Model 25 16 millimeter projectors, which certainly didn't take up as much space. Um, space is at, at a premium. Okay, so here are two century projectors in the middle, and then back there, and then over there were a couple of 16-millimeter projectors. We've since replaced those with two projectors, Kinetone projectors installed in 2007. They can run 35-millimeter and 16-millimeter film, okay? You can see we have very small ports. To, to accommodate digital cinema projection, we have to add a digital cinema projector. Where do you put it? Space is a huge premium. So what we end up having to do is modify 
our booth and our equipment. We did uh, some modifications in 2007. Then in 2013, when they had the theater shut down for two months, we did a few more. The digital cinema projector that you saw in that one image, and uh, maybe it's really here soon, um, it is on a cart. Okay. Okay, here's a, Notice our projection ports are much larger now. So in between those two sentry projectors here, we put our digital cinema projector when we're going to use it. It sits on a cart, on a wheeled cart, so we can wheel it out of the way to use the center projectors when we need to. And the cart has a scissor lift. So every time we need to use this, we need to put it in place, raise it up, take the, take the, uh, take the exhaust from the sentry projector here, and put it onto the projector here, hook all these wires up, and then make sure that it stays in calibration and in line with the, the screen. We have, uh, we have holes in the floor so that we can lock it into place. It's a lot of work. These things are not meant to be moved. You install them, you leave them alone. So ideally, in any typical cinema, you set it up once and it's fine. And then you have a, an annual contract to keep up your warranty and somebody comes out and scopes it out, checks it out, maybe checks the lamp, does any work needs to do. Software upgrades her part of the projector and the server. Ben and Spencer could talk to you this a lot more than I did. I haven't projected here since 2007 upstairs. The, the stuff just has no interest for me. It's like, what's so fun about watching a box or computer? It has no moving parts. It's boring. <laughs> But they projected a heck of an image. And most people who come to the theater, they're there to see a movie. They're not interested. They don't care about the content. We do. There's a difference. Did you have another question? I had one more question. Okay. Oh, Only one? Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Four, so <laughs> uh, I'll come to the drive theater. We'll see a movie like Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo uh, or Ran. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you buy those movies or do you borrow them from the filmmakers? I'm trying to figure out how you get films from okay. other, and is, when the films come in from Europe or Japan or China, are they a standard size or is film the same all around the world? Oh, you're at, see, that wasn't one, that wasn't just four questions, you're on four, <laughs> five, and six. So let me, let me start if, if I can remember. So, uh, if, if we don't have a film title in our collection here, then we will go through film distributors to acquire the title or other film archives. We do not, uh, we do not buy the print. We could not afford that. We rent the print, and we also have to clear the copyright. So we may have to pay the copyright owner of the film a fee. Uh, the films that we have in our vault here, and at last I heard, I think we were upwards of 26,000 titles, not reels, we do not own the copyright for. We may own the physical ass uh, asset. So anytime that film gets screened here or goes out for a loan, whoever is borrowing the film has to contact the owner of the copyright and receive permission to do that, which means usually includes a fee. So that is, that is how that works. And it's up to our film programmer, through his knowledge or her knowledge, um, to find out where these prints reside. Okay, that's not really hard if you've been an enthusiast and you're in touch with other film programmers. You can find that information out. Um, what was your other part of the question? Because now I've forgotten it, but that was probably... No, that, I think that's covered it. No, 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 no. There was something more technical that I could really... Standard, standard size. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. There are two entertainment mediums that have been in the same format and only two for over 100 years. 
I'm glad you brought this up. And I should have brought a box from home to show you the other one. 35 millimeter motion picture film and 88 note player piano rolls. Okay? You can take an 88 note player piano roll, and I know because my wife and I, uh, we have a player piano at home, and you can take that, I can take it to any of my friends' houses who have a player piano, even a, a reproducing player piano, and put it on and it'll play. This 35 millimeter motion picture film will play in any 35 millimeter film projector around the world, which is amazing, you know? Especially in the days of uh, VHS versus Umatic versus, you know, the fact that uh, manufacturers now want to sell you boxes all the time, so they don't want standardization. But this is standard, yeah. Any other questions? Great. Well, I thank you all for coming. Um, I will head upstairs if anybody wants to wind their way up into the booth to take a look at a projector up close for whatever reason. I'm certainly welcome to do that.